You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. David went to the University of Edinburgh and wanted to be a photographer and decided he wanted to be a, a sports photographer. So he headed over to the World Cup in Mexico City and Argentina was playing and Diego Maradona was the star of the Argentine team. Argentina wins, and at the end of the game, all of the photographers around the outside of the field had these very, very long telephoto lenses on their camera bodies. And they all go running out onto the field, and David had decided that the picture that he needed to get was going to be a very up-close picture, so he needed a wide-angle lens. But he had these huge, long telephoto lenses with him, and he couldn't run onto the field with all of his equipment and get the photograph with the smaller lens and the wide angle lens. And so he took his equipment and he left it in the goal area, all of his big expensive equipment in the World Cup, not knowing whether it would be there when he came back. And he went running onto the field with a wide angle lens. Diego Maradona grabs the World Cup, is hoisted over the shoulders of his teammates, and David's right there with a wide angle lens to get Diego Maradona holding up the World Cup above him. And it is the iconic photograph of that World Cup. And David takes it and it goes out and it gets syndicated around the world. And it's on the front page of every newspaper around the world. And David gets his syndication right check back and it's about $3 and 50 cents. And he goes, this business sucks. And so David said, I think I'll probably do better off being in banking. So he goes to NatWest Bank and he becomes a banker. And as he becomes an investor, he decides that he's gonna bound out on his own. And he raises some money from friends and family and he sets up a hedge fund. And to David's own admission, he was a perfectly good, but not great hedge fund manager. And he's managing a couple million bucks, a couple hundred million dollars, not a whole lot of money. Interesting because of the guest I just had on the stage, the first plane hits tower one and David doesn't like how it feels. If you all remember, as Condoleezza Rice just said, she calls the president of the United States and says, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. President goes on and has his meeting with those school kids in Florida and we thought it was just an accident. And it wasn't until 18 minutes later that we knew there was a terrorist attack. Gentleman sitting in the corner here said, I don't like this, sell every position we have. And in the next 18 minutes, his trading desk sold every position that his hedge fund was managing. Tower two gets hit 18 minutes later, world markets fall off by 45%. October, 2001, Every investor in the world is looking at financial statements that have their portfolios down by somewhere between 40 and 70%. And the people who were investors in David's hedge fund were up by 3%. And they said, he's a genius. And so overnight, he went from running a small hedge fund to running a very large hedge fund. He had a billion dollars of capital sent to him between October of 2001 and the beginning of 2002. And so for the next six years, David ran that billion dollars of capital. And again, to his own admission, he was a good hedge fund manager. He was not a great hedge fund manager, but doing well with a lot of capital and making good money. But when that billion dollars came into David, 
it came in in the same way that the first $10 million came in, which was from friends and family. And his subscription agreement said, you invest, you want your money back, call me up anytime and I'll give it back to you. So fast forward to 2008 and Bernie Madoff is discovered to be one of the biggest frauds ever in investing history. And one of Bernie Madoff's biggest investors was Fairfield Capital and Fairfield Capital was David's largest investor. And so just as overnight in 2001, he went from having a small hedge fund to having a big hedge fund. Overnight in 2008, he went from having a large hedge fund to having a very small hedge fund because all of his investors pulled their capital because of the fears around Fairfield Capital. And so because of that experience in the hedge fund world, David woke up in 2009 and said, what am I gonna do now? And he looked back to his career, his early career as being a photographer and said, let's go give that a try. And it is to our great benefit that David had that turn in his career. I first saw David's work. I oh gosh, I've seen David's work for a long period of time. The one that really captured me though was there was a picture in front of the Big Timber Bar in Big Timber, Montana. And my parents own a ranch in Big Timber, Montana. And there is this photograph in front of the Big Timber Bar with this beautiful supermodel in a convertible Cadillac with a wolf sitting in the passenger seat with his paws perched up on top and you just couldn't believe the image. I have it in my home in Denver, Colorado. And um, it immediately said to me, I've got to both study David, I got to follow David and I got to buy David. And um, as you will see over the next hour, um, what David has done with his camera and the way that he has used his view of the world and his incredible talents as a photographer is really a sight to behold. So David Yarrow, thanks. I know I'm going to be in everyone's bad books because it's because I'm here, the earth, wind and fire aren't here. And then I'm following on from Madam Secretary. Very, very humbling uh, to, to do that. I um, thought I'd better start in an appropriate way, given who's just been on. One thing I can do that I don't think she was able to do is go to North Korea. I decided because as a Brit, I'm from Glasgow in Scotland and I apologize if not every word that I say uh, registers with you. There's a few words with O's in the middle like book and cook that we just can't really pronounce. This is Japanese airline flight that was leaving Tokyo in 1970 to go to Osaka and it was hijacked. It was hijacked by was called the Japanese Red Army. They weren't really terrorists, they were more kind of idealists. Uh, they wanted to go to Cuba, which is quite a long way in economy, never mind in a hijacked plane. And they actually they only got as far as Seoul. And the South Koreans said, listen, you're not gonna stay here. And then they had enough petrol left or fuel to get to North Korea. So the South Koreans ordered that they got rid of all the hostages. And the six hijackers, who had actually hijacked the plane with samurai swords, which showed a lot of what security must have been like in Tokyo in 1970, were arrested. And I'm sure, as the uh, previous speaker would inform you much better than I could, that the Japanese and the North Koreans don't get on particularly well. So the Japanese were told, welcome to North Korea for the rest of your life. I, t I tell that story because when I went two years, uh, just before COVID, I wanted to watch a football match, soccer in your terms. And of course, in North Korea, you're not allowed to watch the Housewives of Beverly Hills or Champions League football or anything like that. So they just laughed and they said no. But the fifth day into the trip, as I'd earned the confidence of the people that were looking after me, uh, and they're all government officials, 
and they drank whiskey all day, which suited me down to the ground. They said, actually, there is one place on the East Coast where you can watch the game. And they took me to where the six hijackers had been since 1970, uh, drinking whiskey for the last 48 years. That's me and the hijackers watching Liverpool Bayern Munich in, in North Korea. And Condoleezza Rice has not been able to do that. <laughs> and that was actually a steel plant I photographed near Pyongyang. Photography is all about access. Photography is not about a camera. It's about access and your heart and your soul. It, the camera is just a piece of metal. Your greatest photographer, Ansel Adams, said that photography is about the poems you've read, the loves you've made, the loves you've lost, the music you've listened to. In other words, he's telling you it's a kind of outer manifestation of your inner soul. And that's kind of what I try and do. I just take the camera along for a ride, but I'm just looking at places as beautiful as this. It's how the, you interpret them, not how the camera interprets them. When I was here not too long ago, before COVID, it was the first time I got wind of how bad the wildfires were in Australia. And uh, I decided that I shouldn't be photographing bison in the winter in Idaho and Wyoming. I should be relevant and I should go straight down to New South Wales. On the way down there, I uh, called up a few Aussie mates and they said the place you should go is Kangaroo Island, which is south of Adelaide. They have the one uh, six-star resort, in, I think, in Australia, on Kangaroo Island. And when I arrived there, that's what I found. I was the first cameraman to go behind what was effectively army lines because the Australians weren't allowing people into the, the west side of the, the island. I probably saw about 10,000 dead animals before I, I saw the first live one. This The first live one I saw was this koala. And uh, with the help of Australians who are great in a, in a crisis, we raised a significant amount of money for what's called the Koala Comeback Campaign. I haven't got enough time to talk about things such as global warming. It's fairly evident that looking at Southern Europe now and looking at parts of California and China, that it's, it's for real. My only comment that I'd make is it's not a straight line. And we all know parts of America that had very tough Christmases and, and winters in terms of the temperature and the, the length of the winter. I just think from our own experiences around the world, it fluctuates. The volatility is much more pronounced than the actual linear bottom left to top right, but there's no doubt uh, it is here. As Willie kindly said, my, my career started with Maradona and, and when he passed two or three years ago, I did shed a tear because I think that picture did have a, a meaningful uh, impact on my life. And I think I wouldn't be here now if I hadn't taken the picture. I've always had a fondness for Argentinians because the two lenses that Willie mentioned that I left in the net were there when I came back and there were 10,000 Argentinian fans on the pitch at the final whistle. That would never happen again. But the fact that the cameras were still there, they weren't interested in stealing anything. They were celebrating such a joyous day for them as a nation. My hero is Steven Spielberg. I'm sure I'm not alone in this room. I think he's the storyteller of our generation, perhaps the previous generation, perhaps the next generation. I asked my, uh, my kids why... Taylor Swift is the most relevant female artist in the world, maybe relevant artist in the world. And they say that is because she tells stories in the same way that Spielberg tells stories and that my own humble way, how I try and tell stories. I think our favorite films are the ones we've watched the most. I watched uh, Wedding Crashes for the 18th time on the flight over here. 
I feel like a delegate crasher actually right now. But Jaws, I've watched an awful lot. And I got obsessed with great white sharks. I'd spent um, 30 hours in the water um, in False Bay near Cape Town. And I was just about to give up. My friends just said, why don't you just go and see a therapist? Why are you spending all this time trying to capture this picture that no one's got before? Success is 99% failure. And the one thing that I always tell people that, that have looked at the ups and downs of my career and the bit of fortune I've had the last 15 is that you have bumps on the way, but never quit. And when I took that picture, I had no one to celebrate with. I went back to a little fishing village called Simonstown and I looked at it on my screen and it was pin sharp. And it went around the world. And then a bit like you were saying earlier on, I got my check back. And my check then was, I think, for about $15,000. And I worked out that it cost me 28000 to take the picture. So I thought, what an awful business model this is. This is, this is 2009. And then a lawyer from Houston, Texas called me up and he said, are you the kid that took the photograph of the shark? And I said, I think it might be. He said, well, I'm an attorney called Jaws and I would like one of those in, in my office. I want to put the fear of God into anyone that's going to take me on. So he said, how much for the picture? And I didn't really know what to say because it wasn't the way in 2009 that you monetize your craft as a photographer. So I said, seven, maybe 7,000 will make it the size of kind of half a pool table. And he went, $7,000? So I obviously thought I'd gone way too high. So I said, well, we'll deliver it for free. And he went, no, we're going to get five of those shark. And that was my epiphany. That was my, my moment when I realized that photography at the time when everyone is a photographer was changing. And the way to monetize it was to go down the fine arts routes of trying to take five or six strong pictures a year and make sure the supply of those pictures was very, very tight. And I wrote a paper, a bit like Jerry Maguire wrote that paper before he got fired and put it in everyone's cubbyhole about how photography was going to change. And I've got an awful lot wrong in my life, but that was one thing that I got right, that people like Getty Images are effectively broke, A, because they're saddled with too much debt, and, and secondly, because the same rules of supply and demand pertain to photography as they do to your industry. And right now, everyone is a photographer at the, at the time that the magazine industry, advertising industry is under so much pressure. So, but I had to, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? I, I needed some big pictures other than a, a shark picture. Uh, and in 2014, I, uh, I went to South Sudan. It was, there was a civil war going on there. It's a, I think the world's newest country is a tough place. Uh, and I knew there was an image. I had an image in mind to borrow from Ansel Adams. Again, I, I make pictures rather than take pictures. And I saw something that was biblical up in the big cattle camps. If I could have raised elevation, it's very flat on the Nile. And I needed to take a ladder all the way up South Sudan and then cross the Nile with these crocodiles with the ladder. But I, I got this picture and I think in many ways it was called mankind. And it went from me being on the periphery of the art market to someone that art dealers around the world felt that there might be an opportunity cost if they didn't uh, even consider a relationship. Uh, Mark Twain uses the line about the two most important um, days in a man's life or woman's life for the day they're born and the, the day they find out why. And I think that on the, 
was it the 29th of December 2014 was the, the day I knew what I was set up to do. I spent quite a bit of time documenting the natural world. I have, I've had my moments. We work with very good people on the ground. That was the world's biggest elephant at the time. Those are the world's two biggest elephants, uh, Tim and Craig. They don't know they're called Tim and Craig. Tim, Tim's past the one in the middle, but the one on the right uh, is Craig. He's 51 years old, and they're called Big Tuskers, where they're kind of half elephant, half mammoth. And when you see one for the first time, it really is a spine-tingling moment. I don't want to get involved in too many of these discussions in the next hour, but I think an awful lot of environmentalists are wrong in terms of our generation and what we are doing with the planet and the protection of the planet. I think this could well be a generation in terms of Africa that is defined by what they're getting right in the planet. And where this picture was taken, there hasn't been an elephant poached for seven years. Uh, so there are a lot of good news that I see in the natural world that doesn't get reported because bad news sells much better than good news. The lion is under pressure. It's the animal that I, I guess I've got the, the strongest track record of photographing, and it's an iterative process. The more you get it wrong, you learn how to eventually get it right. There's a the 100 years ago, there was about 100,000 lion left in the world. There's now about 14,000. And the reason for that decline is one simple thing, which is population growth. Population growth in, in Africa specifically. You don't hear that too much because people that take a stage like I am today, if they talk about population growth, it could be seen to be implicitly anti-Muslim, it could be seen to be implicitly racist. So they prefer to talk about climate change as an easier way out. But the reality is that the lion and the elephant, the biggest threat for them is Af Kenya's population is growing by 4,000 a day. If you haven't been up to uh, see the gorillas, you should. It's in Rwanda. It costs 1500 but that's the same as the espresso martini in Aspen. So you can just... just just avoid going to Aspen and go to, go to uh, Rwanda for the day. You will meet them. It's a good trek up, but it's, it's a bucket shop uh, thing to do. And tigers, again, I'm often told, what, what are the, when do you get a sort of free sum of excitement in your job in terms of encounters with animals? I'd say tigers because they're dangerous and they will kill you. And there's not so many of them. And then polar bears. That picture, to me, is interpretive. It can be so many things to different people. It could be a, a, a message of solidarity, extraordinary biodiversity of our planet. It could be a Nike advert to some people. But to work uh, with polar bears in the north, and the polar bear population, by the way, is fairly static versus the lion population because they're not idiots and they understand that the world is changing, so they just move to areas where they can live a comfortable existence. But unfortunately, that leads to more human polar bear encounters. This picture is done quite well because it reminds so many wives of what they wake up to every morning. And, and then they, they give that to their husbands and also occasionally husbands give it to their wives for the same reason. We call it a grumpy monkey. That's taken in Nagano in, in, in Japan. I've had a couple of moments in my life where I've nearly lost my life. The biggest one was as photographing killer, killer whales in uh, Siberia. And I was in a raft. And it's so, it was so cold. The reason to be in the rough was so I could be right at water's level and be looking up at these orcas. And it was probably about minus 15. And I wasn't wearing a wetsuit. And I tried, I was in, trying to get back to the main boat. And I put my knees in the wrong part of the raft. And the raft tipped. 
and uh, hit me on the head and I went down with my cameras in the Arctic, Siberian Ocean. They reckon you got about two minutes in those circumstances. So I got hypothermia and I was taken to the hospital. I asked Willie if I could say anything in front of this crowd and he said, yes, yeah, say whatever you want. When I went to the hospital, I had actually, my genitals had disappeared uh, inside my body. And I identify as a man from Scotland, so it was obviously uh, not, it didn't sit comfortably with me um, for a few days. But that was the picture I got. That's how you want to photograph orchids. You want to be close and immersive and be looking up at them. Bears, which I love photographing, I, from here I go to Alaska, um, which I think is the most unhinged part of America. They're great. What makes Alaska so special is not just the countryside, which is wild, but the people that are even wilder and so kind of unrefined from every perspective that they're, they're, it's all, they're parodies of themselves. Uh, but we go up to a place called Iliamna. By the way, if anyone wants to come and talk to me about where, to, where I take the pictures, please do. I'm, I'll be knocking around. I think your emblematic animal, however, is the, is the bison. And I photographed this on uh, Ted Turner's ranch in Montana two years ago. You, want, you don't want to try that at home because they are, to me, they are everything that's emblematic about, they're emblematic of your country in terms of the fortitude, the resolve, they survived two ice ages. And I want to photograph them in the cold weather because it's the cold weather that defines them. So those are Mustang horses, your wild horses that are again under enormous amount of pressure. I were with a lady, some of you, you'll all remember some of her husbands, uh, Madeline Boone Pickens. Uh, she was married to Boone Pickens and uh, Paulson beforehand, I believe. And she's taken it upon herself to really be the person that protects the Mustang um, in, in America. I went down to visit her ranch, which is enormous in Nevada in the winter. And I didn't think we'd get a chance. And then we saw that what was happening in that previous video. Um, just randomly, it wasn't we had no expectation that that was going to happen. And I got my one moment uh, with the Mustang coming uh, right towards me. The problem with wildlife photography is not necessarily art. It's a little bit too literal. And just because I do it means that a lot of other people can do the same thing. They can copy, they can go to where I'm going. These pictures here with the one on the left looks like it could be a stand at the British Open next week, except there are no trees in, in Hoylake. The other one's photographing, I uh, think, Las Nefers up in the Himalayas. But as soon as you see other people with a camera, it's a crowded long to go back to my previous job. It's like buying Apple on 22 times. What's the upside? Where's the skill in that? I want to be on my own. And I spend less and less time in the natural world. The journey is what matters. As my fellow Scott Robert Louis Stevenson said, it is the journey. I don't know where, what I'm going to be photographing in two years' time, but it's got to be relevant and I've got to have a buzz when I get up in the morning to do it. So I took this picture in Montana in a, um, in a, a village called Virginia City, which is a ghost town near a place called Ennis in Western Montana. I went in there to warm up. It was so cold and we'd been filming with wolves from a sanctuary. And I went into this bar and I thought, this is the best quintessential American saloon I've ever been into. And I said to the bar manager who's with me up there in the, in the tall seats, I said, can I bring a wolf into the bar? And he said, yeah, we have wolves here the whole time. And that picture, for whatever reason, elicited more interest 
than so many of the pictures that I've shown you before. Because A, there's an authenticity to it, hadn't been seen before. And if people have a bar, like I'm sure many of you do at home, you want to put a badass picture at a bar. You don't want pictures of lavender growing in Provence. What's the relevance of that in, in your bar? So this came by accident in this random walk of life in 2015. And it changed the way that we went about our work. There's a picture there of, uh, with Cindy and a, a bunch of... The great thing about working in Montana is you don't have to hire extras. You just find them in the bars. And the guy on the right with the gun, he, there was a stage where he was standing next to Cindy and he needed to go to the loo. Um, but he, he had to weigh up whether if he went to the loo, he might lose his place next to Cindy. So I just saw this wet patch forming in Australia. And he just thought, I'm not losing my position. I'll just pee in my pants. Uh, that's Montana. We love uh, telling stories of the Wild West. I think uh, Taylor Sheridan's cottoned on to it that it is the greatest story ever told. And it's a story of, of, in, of human endeavor and fortitude. And it's character rich and landscape rich. So we spend a lot of time doing our own anthology into the Wild West. We've, we've been helped enormously in some ways by COVID. COVID did two things for the art market, in my eyes. Number one, people couldn't afford to, couldn't go abroad. Uh, so they would do up their house. So the art, art market had a reasonable COVID. But far more importantly, in your country, we've seen massive movements of wealth away from the seaboards into places like Sun Valley and Colorado and Wyoming and Montana. And these places and new homes are being built. There's fairly easy planning permission in a lot of the places. And these homes need to have art in them. So I look back to six or seven years ago and the idea that places like Big Sky Montana would be a bigger market for us than Paris or Milan or Miami, we would have laughed if people had said that. But that's the reality of what's happened in terms of the, the permanent movement of wealth. And I'm sure you've seen it in your jobs. I'm staggered when I go to places, some of the resorts in Colorado or here or specifically in, 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 in Montana, uh, the, the just mountains of wealth that have moved there never to return. Um, and I, I sympathize with them. I, I, if I had a choice between living somewhere like here or San Francisco, I think I know what my, my choice would be. Um, we started to work more and more with um, telling stories with animals and celebs. Cindy and I got to know each other through her work with the University of Wisconsin, where her brother sadly passed uh, from cancer at an early age. Uh, their pediatric cancer care unit is really groundbreaking in America. So what she said to me is she said, well, listen, I'll work with you and I won't charge you anything. And this is a girl whose day, day rate is 300,000, quite rightly, but we'll split the profits. And the model has kind of worked. And the, the last picture you saw, that one, I think that's raised over one and a half million for, for the hospital. And it's great when I take my kids up there to Wisconsin, to Madison, it's, it's humbling and it gives perspective. She's an American gem, I'll come on to that. Just a beautiful uh, inside, far more important. Cara is a British model, some of you may know. She's authentic which is important, a bit like in the art world, it's important to be authentic. She, there's only one car that I mean, and we did this campaign for, uh, and that was real. That lion was right behind her. And we had a working with a guy called the Lion Whisperer in South Africa. If he wasn't there, there would be, would be a bit of a problem. So I worked with her 
Uh, we're going to also, I'm sure some of you have had a few drinks in the Jerome Bar in Aspen over the years. Uh, it's a good crew. If you want to go uh, with a Scottish drinking companion, Jerry Butler is not a bad uh, start. Um, so he can drink, drink me under the table. Roxanne's up here somewhere at the top. That's for real as well. But the bear isn't actually looking at Roxana. Bear is looking at the rabbit on the left-hand side of the bar and very transfixed by it. Uh, this is all up in uh, Yellowstone. Actually, it's in um, the old uh, Marlboro Ranch where Philip Morris used to take people in the, in, in the old days, which is now part of the whole um, group that have got uh, the Yellowstone uh, Club. But I'd like to, when I have pictures like this, I want to have extreme characters. A bit like the Coen brothers, it amplifies everything. You want, if you want a grizzly mountain man, make sure it's the very best grizzly mountain man you can find. If you want the polar extreme of that, make sure that the girl, if any of you are baseball fans, that's uh, Jose Canseco's uh, daughter, Josie. I think if uh, I try to find the most enduring symbols of Americana as an outsider to your fabulous country, I struggle to think of a more enduring symbol than the cowboy. That picture there, I think the anonymity is helps the picture. It's not about him, it's about the genre that the picture represents. That was shot where, again, if anyone's a Coen Brothers scholar, that was the opening scene in No Country for Old Man, that road down to Ors Marfa in West Texas. I said I wasn't going to get political. I'm going to say one thing. This, the, of all the stuff that's going on with the woke and cancel culture, the there are a lot of this, to me, there's a lot of nuts stuff. And if you think you've got it bad here in America, you should spend time in London, where these idiots think that they can change the oil market just by stopping traffic every day and throwing confetti out at Wimbledon and whatever. The idea that you take a Native American chief, and this is Sitting Bull's great-great-grandson, and put him in front of Devil's Tower, that somehow or other that is patronizing or appropriation, I think that's just nonsense. To me, the most important thing is what does he think? And what does he permit? And what does his family think? And when I showed him that picture and all the dignity and grace that's conveyed by his face, he cried. And now he's got it in his house. He sadly passed um, recently. But to me, that's the important thing. So I think when you get these, these accusations throwing around that a picture like that is in any way patronizing or appropriation. I, I, I don't think so. I think it's a, a celebration of their culture. And but the, 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 the barometer of that is always what do they think? What does the protagonist think? So I got to meet Jordan Belford about six years ago. He is a kind of he's he's changed an awful lot from the movie. Uh and he has cleaned the act up a little bit. Scorsese never met him. Uh because Scorsese knew he'd hate him and he wanted to have something that was likable within him for the movie. Um, Leo met him many times, and he had to actually water down parts of, uh, of Jordan's behavior. The, 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 I've got quite a few stories, which I can tell maybe people later, but I think my favorite one with Jordan was that we took this picture, and I got Scorsese to sign it, and DiCaprio to sign it, and we thought we'd raise money for charity. So at our Miami, it sold for $200,000. But I needed... Jordan to be at Art Miami for the photo shoot with everyone else. And we hadn't discussed terms in terms because he owns the rights to the Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, so I said, I'll tell you what, uh, it's Art Miami. And if any of you 
been there during that week, you know what I'm talking about. It's a bit of a zoo. I'll give you, I'll put you up in a suite at the set eye, and then we'll just call it evens. That was a big mistake. I think the bill, when I came to collect the bill, was 71,000. So he hasn't, uh, uh, hasn't changed. Uh, after we did that shot, I thought, to me, this is the, the iconic uh, little th- clip within the movie. The hardest thing about that picture, which all did happen, was the helicopter that was taken um, just off the coast of uh, Los Angeles. Um, the FBI guys, we got the back jackets, which I think helps the story. I'm trying to include everything in that one moment. And that's what you have to do in a, a single image, is you have to have so many layers so you can tell a story in, in, in one single image. We got stick because people said, you've been cruel to the lobsters. But the lobsters were dead anyway. We bought them from a seafood restaurant. They were going to be eaten by someone anyway. So, um, but that was a fun, fun thing to do. Jordan, uh, now I would just do the reverse of whatever he suggests in financial markets. And when he was piling into these chimpanzees, NFT things, I had no idea what he was doing. I think that was the, right at the top of that NFT market, which, which we never touched. When I think of your country and the opportunity it gives for outsiders like myself, and so many Europeans, I, 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 I try and retrospectively look back and see what you've got that other countries don't have. And you have the greatest geographical mobility of any country in the world. And the number of conversations I hear about uh, just between people like at this conference saying, oh, well, my kids, he's, he was in Dallas, but he's moved to Seattle. Oh, no, they're going to Nashville. And then I think they're going down to Phoenix. We don't have that in, in Europe. It's either London or you've got a bit of a problem. You don't want to be in Manchester really for too long. And, and your highway system and the rollout of your roll network, I think is integral to the American dream. And we thought we had to play a little bit of a play on that theme and, and as our kind of tribute to the American uh, dream and American mobility. Now, that's in a place, that's obviously Windsor, Arizona, and that's not too far uh, from there as well, Holbrook. Don't go there in a hurry. I think one of the great stretches of road uh, in America is Sunset Boulevard towards the Shadow Marmon, looking west with those massive billboards. And we wanted to kind of play a 1975 theme. So we got the Elton billboard from the Dodgers game. And of course, the shadow hasn't changed. And then jo- the Jaws poster. And I got Cindy to be a, you know, a hipster, which uh, she plays so, so well. And I think I'm a romanticist. I want to tell fun stories, good stories, or make people smile. Uh, not look at a picture and go how miserable this world is, because I think this is a fairly good world. And of course, of all the Cindy adverts, uh, the Cindy things she's been involved in, there was the one defining moment of, I think, her modeling career from a film perspective. And I still think that this uh, advert, which was played in the Super Bowl halftime in uh, well, 1993, I think, is, uh, is probably the greatest advert of all time. We shot, um, we shot, went back to the same gas station. This was last year, so he hasn't changed at all. The gas station hasn't changed. And we used wolves as like an allegory to the young boys because we, we couldn't know, we didn't know how to single shot, particularly in 2023, we could put young kids in that picture. But we, I thought the, the wolves worked well as a, as, a, as a substitute. And that picture is again, I think, raised uh, uh, over 2 million for the, for the hospital. If anyone's interested in these pictures, particularly the charitable ones, Uh, Cindy does sign them and just come and talk to me uh, about it.
that was all. I'm glad I'm not filming there now. It's, I think, about 48, 49 degrees. That's, uh, well, it's not 170 miles from Vegas, but it's near enough. But in the de- around Joshua Tree National Park, and there's so much scope for a filmmaker there. The site Hitchcockian in terms of north by northwest, that actually did happen. Uh, so a lot of faith in the pilot in that picture. So golf and sports is something that I, in many ways my career has gone back full circle and sports photography doesn't sell as art because it's literal. Um, there'll be pictures that are taken of that extraordinary tennis game in London on, on Sunday, but they're photojournalistic pictures. They're not necessarily art pictures. What we've tried to do is take the sports stars that you're so familiar with and then almost take them out of their comfort zone and in so doing slightly demystify them. So we started working with Augusta that are not the easiest body to work with, but luckily I've got to know uh, Gary fairly well and, and Jack. That was actually the last picture of, uh, of Arnold Palmer uh, alive. And it was, it was, you can see how frail he looks uh, on that particular day. I remember the first time that I worked with uh, Gary at Augusta in 2016 and the night before he played and with uh, Tom Watson and Jack Nicholas, he said, David, if I do anything special, don't miss it. And uh, I couldn't let him down because he was my host as much as anything else. I remember needing to go to the loo uh, on the 7th and I, the, the call wasn't so urgent, but I thought it was a good opportunity. And behind the 7th, there's a bit of a hill up to the bathrooms. And as I was walking up to the bathroom, hence elevating my position, the noise from the crowd got bigger and bigger. And I turned around with my camera and I saw Gary's tee shot moving from about 35 feet from the hole between these closer and closer down the hill. And lucky enough, I got the picture. It was pure. It was luck. I was on the way to the bathroom. But I couldn't let Gary down. He's a born entertainer and he's been a paragon for sports professionals for many, many years. It's an honor to call him a a friend. And as we've got to know each other better, I put him the concept of doing something special uh, for the 150th anniversary of the British Open, which of course is being held at the home of golf in St. Andrews. This epic journey began with a small step, a spark of inspiration, a leap of faith. The dreamers, the few who defied the norm and blazed the trail for many to follow. There would be no barriers, no exclusions, no exceptions. This journey would be open to all. Every era, every champion, every hero, every victory, every character-building defeat, every cherished moment, every one of them has left a footprint on this great journey. It is the original, the root of all we know. Every word, every anecdote, every tale told, story to inspire all. Nothing compares. No equal exists. Okay. Well, we have to 
The approach to the 18th, with the town and the golf course coalescing in happy unity as they have for 400 years, has a, a sensory overload that beats Glen Coe, that beats any kind of brave heart seen in Scotland. It is the home of golf. Every minute, every day in the sign has steered us to this moment. I'm sure many of you have been to St Andrews. It's probably the one part of my home country that Americans would immediately recognize. It's not that they're going to go down the, a place in Glasgow and say that's definitely Glasgow, but that view in St Andrews, I think it's known the world over. Uh, one or two people say, no, 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 but you got them playing you the whole the wrong way around. No, because 150 years ago, they played it the other way around. So that's what gave me the right to have the, the Gary player facing away from the clubhouse and the, and the RNA. And that's now actually in the RNA. I photographed uh, Jack with uh, Gary at um, the Bear Club in Jupiter uh, not too long ago. And I'd found a dive bar and floor nearby that I wanted to take him to. But it takes a while to kind of win the great man over. And I think we're, we're kind of getting there. But he said, no, 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 I'm just going to, we just want to shoot in the locker room. And the locker room in his club doesn't give you much potential as an artist. So we actually had to turn it into a dive bar, uh, which is, I think the members actually quite appreciated it as a, as a dive bar for, for a day or so. I think of all the sports stars I've worked with over the last 12 to 18 months, I think John Mack's probably the most intimidating, but probably that doesn't surprise you either. Uh, he's a bright man. He loves his music. He identifies as a musician as much now as he, he, he does a tennis player. And I persuaded him. I, he, he wanted us to build the sets. He had no control over it. And I thought that second game, with the, the, second, the second match with Borg, for those that follow tennis, you remember that Borg never played another. He walked off, missed a press conference, and that was it. He never did. And he was only, I think, what was he, 25 at that time? And he never played another major again since um, Macker beat him in that match. So, and it was the time that they were all quite bad boys, maybe not Borg. That I tried with John a little bit on the tube in, in Manhattan to get him going. And I said, come on, tell me what it was like you know, with Vetus Gerolitis and all that in 1981, he said, well, he said, all this talk about performance enhancing drugs in athletics in 2022, 2023, we took performance de-enhancing drugs. <laughs> and there's a, the old story, you know, Vetus Gerolitis used to take him to Studio 54 straight from the tennis. And that's where they hung out until three in the morning. When I'm trying to build a story, I want to I'm greedy. I want so many different layers in it, which is why I thought we'd put village people in. But not village people as how they look now, because that wasn't going to work. But village people, how they, they did look in 1981. And then I thought, for that's a, any of you live in Manhattan, I'm sure one or two of you will, that's the oldest Irish bar, McSorley's, on the east side of the East Village, where um, Scorsese actually did his press uh, conferences for the gangs of New York in that bar because it's built in 19, 18, 1854 and nothing's changed at all from, from, from the bar. Behind the bar, there are chicken wings, chicken bones, and the chicken bones were from American soldiers going to the war in 1917 
and the ones that didn't come back, their chicken bones still hang there on the wire at uh, McSorley's. He's, um, he doesn't like this picture because he thinks he looks old, but I said, you don't, you look badass. And I watched him at Wimbledon on Sunday. I think he looks much better there than in the pictures at Wimbledon. Um, we've been working with skiers recently, and I'm sure a lot of skiers in the room. Norway is going through some heady days in sport. They've got a tremendous golfer. They've got the fourth best tennis player in the world. They've got, by far and away, the best footballer in the world right now. Uh, Alexander Kilda is the best men's downhill skier in, in the world. So I thought we'd pay homage to Norway's heritage in polar exploration. Uh, and again, they're not easy, hard people to find in Norway. It's a bit like finding the drunks in Montana. Um, but we thought Alexander dates a proper American superstar. So I tried to persuade him in his summer training on the glaciers in Norway to bring along someone I think you all know who this is. Uh, but Michaela Schiffer, and she's a, she's a real rock star and delightful company. Uh, and again, took, took her a little bit out of her comfort zone. I know how much she's revered by this, the skiing community in America. And certainly from my perspective, working with her, she's uh, totally delightful. I went back to Dallas uh, a couple of weeks ago. Troy wanted to do this thing with the with Roger, they, I think if any Cowboy fans here, they would certainly acknowledge that they're the two most famous uh, quarterbacks in the in the franchise's history. And it was a, a great honor to do that. And uh, again, Roger's a d delightful uh, family man. I want to finish with a couple of little things. And we, we did this, um, a shoot in San Moritz, which is the kind of smartest European ski resort. And in San Moritz is where British people that refuse to give up um, and grow old. They go through midlife crises and they do strange things like bobsleigh and curling and play cricket on the ice. And they do this thing called, you know, the luge. Excuse me, and it's how much that will carry down. He was high there on the exit at 12 or so. 1600s, he's got to get out of 13 clean. He gets out of 13 clean. He's going to be the Olympic champion. Johannes Ludwig is the Olympic champion. And he looks like it's just another day at the office. So in, in summer, it's a thing called the Cresta Run. You might have seen pictures of it. You might, some of you might have been mad enough to go down it. It's a very British thing. It's like Downton Abbey on ice. And uh, I thought what we'd, what we'd do would be to have a lair. This wasn't enough for me just to photograph the Cresta Run. So I thought we'd get one of Europe's leading fashion models in the foreground and then have the, the Cresta Run in the, in the background. What I hadn't really thought about was that these seasoned Cresta riders who've been doing this year after year after year have never seen anything out of their left eye. So I hadn't really properly figured it out in my own mind about what could possibly go wrong. And this is what went wrong. That's the beginning of the Cresta run. I, I've coming full circle as a um, given previous guest. Uh, it's been an honor to get to know George W who's spends a lot of his time painting now and uh, he invited me to the SMU uh, really to talk about art. Uh, and he couldn't have been uh, more congenial company. It was a great, very humbling and a, and, a, and a great honor. I've got my new book, my books out. I've got about 60 of them here and I know there's far more delegates than 60. So we're gonna just, you know Wimbledon finished last week. I've got about 60 books to give out. Don't shout out, but if anyone can tell me who the tennis player is in this picture, quietly come up to me and I'll give you a book. And I'm sure there are lots of other books to go around. Just come and 
come and talk to me. Don't shout out now. But uh, I think the great thing about tennis is about unity. It's a, you get emotion in the player that is matched by the spectators. And I don't know any other sport where it happens with such intensity as it does in tennis. So when someone's celebrating a point, their emotion can be matched by absolutely everyone behind, which is what I think that, that picture um, conveys. I don't know whether we've got time for questions. I just, I want to say one final quick thing other than to thank Willie for the, for the invitation. I know you look introspectively at your country and maybe sometimes you, you have a disposition that says we've got all these problems and all this infighting. All that I'd say as an outsider and as a Brit coming over here where we spend nine months of the year is it's your country more than any other country in the world that allows artists to fulfill their dreams. Uh, I can't think of uh, a country that comes close to America in terms of positivity, collaboration, believing in other people, helping other people, today being a, a case in point. So when you're having your down moments, do know that whilst there are problems, you still have by far and away the, the best country in the world. Um, thank you very, very much.